Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, Real Life Edition, and I'm joined by Bita Fakhri. Dr. Fakhri is an assistant professor of medicine, of hematology, oncology. She is an expert in lymphoma. And she, uh, she's somebody who came across my radar because I watched you give a talk, and it was really spectacular. And I thought, oh boy, people would love to hear you. Um, let me just give listeners one more bit of background about you. You did your medical school abroad in Iran. Uh, then you came here, went to Boston University for your residency. You did your fellowship at WashU St. Louis, which is a great lymphoma program. Uh, shout out to, I know David Russell Germain is listening as we speak. Um, and, uh, and then you came here for faculty. So thank you so much for doing this interview. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I, um, I want to talk about two things. I mean, one, I want to talk about, you know, your career and, and how you feel as, um, you know, an early career scientist. Um, but first, I kind of want to talk a little bit about, you know, how, do you, how are you thinking about lymphoma to get list, so listeners get a sense of it. So maybe if, if you will indulge me, maybe we could just talk about Hodgkin's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So um, there's big results out now, which is uh, polituzumab, vedotin, is, uh, has a PFS benefit over CHOP. Uh, so this is substituting out the Oncovin for Pola. Uh, all we know is the press release. I guess, uh, how do you think about a result like that? Um, and then maybe we can bridge over and talk about AAVD, ABVD, yeah. Definitely. I mean, like everyone else, I just learned about the news as a press release, and I was quite surprised by the amount of excitement that it generated, mm -hmm. but understandably so, because after rituximab was introduced to the field, and after we saw the R-CHOP versus CHOP Kaplan-Meier curve, all the curves completely overlapped. So um, I understand the enthusiasm, and I'm anxiously waiting to mm -hmm. read and learn more about the trial. But to be determined, to be honest with you, you know, um, is a PFS benefit going to be really um, changing the landscape for the treatment of upfront non-diffuse large B-cell lymphoma sure. to be determined? I think we really need to wait for ASH. ASH is going to be really big for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. We have the R-chip POLA data. We have the CAR at first relapse data versus mm, auto salvage. Yes, finally we get that. Yeah, we have that and there, there's so many and uh, the bites are all um, basically updating the results. So there's so many exciting things happening, but I think in the upfront setting, the one that I don't want to miss is the Archipola to see what you're going to find out. That's what I want to see. I know it piqued my interest. As you know, CHOP had been hard to beat. They tried for many years. They got their um, promecytobomb. Uh, the classic <laughs> promecytobomb. <laughs> I've never given it, actually. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And, you know, they've done everything. They've done R-squared chop, uh -huh. R-V chop. Yep. Velcade. Yeah. The Ibrutinib. 
I wrote Nivex, the Phoenix trial, yeah, and yeah. You know, yeah, the subset analysis showed some signals, but it didn't met, meet its primary endpoints. So uh, this is this is, I think, exciting because you know, like Hodgkin, I think the trial was inspired by the fact that Hodgkin took the antibody drug conjugate to the upfront setting, yeah. mm-hmm. and they had really good results, and they said, okay, let's do it in diffuse large B cell lymphoma, and um, yeah, whether PFS benefit is going to translate into. Um, a practice-changing pattern, I think we just need to wait and see. That's a good answer. Good answer. That's uh, people are getting quite enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. Um, 20 years ago, Lou Stout, Ashley Day, they had that Nature paper looking at gene expression profiling, and they found this uh, activated B-cell phenotype, the germinal center phenotype, uh, and then this non, uh, you know, big other category. Since then, you know, we use the Hans algorithm, which is like not perfectly sensitive, not perfectly specific, so there's some misclassification there. Um, I guess my question is, 20 years later, how important has ABC and GCB become? When do you think about it, if at all? Um, and uh, yeah, let's start with that. That's a, that's a great point that you brought up. You know, that NIGEM, New England Journal, journal issue in mm-hmm. 2003 was really important because of that paper. Yeah. And also, uh, I don't know whether you remember or not, the CLL IGHV mutated versus yes. unmutated, unmutated SAS. Prognostic well, Exactly. Data. was also published in the same mm-hmm. issue. So, oh, wow. Yeah, Good so, memory. You know, you, know, I, you know, someone gave a talk and uh-huh. put them together and I yeah. realized that, um, you know, that was a very important issue. That being said, I think to date, um, it's still prognostic. Mm-hmm. You know, you can tell your patients. Um, I think it's really important to make that determination early on, GCB versus ABC, uh, because, you know, there are some drug opportunities in the relapsed refractory setting mm-hmm. in the ABC uh, phenotype. Mm-hmm. You know, they've done the early phase studies that lenalidomide, there is a response rate of about 60% in the ABC phenotype. As compared to five to ten percent in the GCB phenotype, but sure. that being said, if you have a GCB patient, if any of us have, you know, we have a GCB patient in the relapsed refractory setting that do not have any other options, we are not going to deprive them from. You'll LEN. still try LEN. You'll right. still try sure. because maybe Eventually, they're the yeah. yeah five to ten percent. Same for ibrutinib. I think the response rate was about forty percent in the ABC phenotype, sure. whereas it was five to ten percent in the GCB phenotype. And I think that's how, that's the signal that the Phoenix trials saw in the ABC phenotype. And that's one of the alliance trials that are using ibrutinib as maintenance post-auto transplant in the ABC phenotype. Mm, interesting. So uh, I think right now, um, GCB versus ABC, it's still prognostic. And at least in the relapsed refractory setting can be predictive. Yeah. We know that um, ABC phenotype has a high response rate with yeah. certain agents. But in the upfront setting, um, you know, nothing has been able to beat our chop yet yeah. in either phenotype. I think uh, when I first heard about it and when, um, you know, people were talking at least a decade ago or a decade and a half ago, people were really enthusiastic that this would change the whole game. We'd have ABC drugs, we'd have GCB drugs, and they wouldn't be the same at all. But the surprising part is 20 years later, uh, as you point out, um, a little bit of role for it to think about it mostly in the relapse setting. Um, but it hasn't panned out the way I think people thought. I think people thought Velcade would be a success in ABC at least, or Ibrutin would work up front in ABC. One of the things I think about is um, um, 
I also don't use Revlimid and I don't use Ibrutinib until I really need to. So I can I can think of five, six, seven lines of cytotoxic. I mean, I go through my cytotoxic. I'm an old fashioned doctor, mm-hmm. uh, and then I then I bust out these new drugs. Mm-hmm. But yeah, especially I think in the recent year it has become harder because now you have Tafalin. Oh yes. Um, now you have basically BR Pola for transplant ineligible yes, patient yes. population. Lankestoximab got approval. Yes. Selinexor got approval. So you have basically Selinexor, a growing yeah. armamentarium of treatment options for relapsed refractory patients who are not going to be um, going down the route of curative routes. So um, it's becoming harder to really um, make a meaningful um, interpretation of GCB versus ABC in this setting. Yeah. I still like all my old-fashioned drugs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. I, I like, I, and I I like think my Gemox. I so hear you. And I, I um, you know, I'm open to mm-hmm. trying new mm-hmm. um, combinations, but uh, truth be told, I think even the leaders in the field have realized that it's becoming really overcrowded. Yeah. And we need randomized trials yeah, to, to just to really sort it out, yeah. especially you know in the post-car relapse setting. I yeah. know the Alliance Group is thinking about doing that trial. Um, what is the best treatment approach? Is it BR Pola? Is it Tafalen? Is it Lankestoximab? Is it BR Pola? And, you know, we also are taking all these new treatments as bridging therapy for CAR T patients. You know, we know that those patients have deemed to be chemo refractory. So no matter how hard you hit them with chemo, they're not going to respond. So now we are using more and more radiation, especially for bulky sites, to just hold them up until the CAR-T product becomes available and Mm -hmm. they can go on. And, um, you know, a lot of these people, you don't want to beat them too hard before going into CAR-T. So you really try to give them a little bit of, you know, taff, I mean, tenedidomide, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, something something light, so light, they're not yeah exactly yeah before they go mm-hmm. into their um, uh, lymphodepletion. Yeah, I I, I think it's going to be super interesting, Ash, because we we right now we're looking at like current standard of care. I think R chop you cure 60, 65, 70 percent depending, uh, and then auto in CR one if you can get them there um, with uh, you know typically a salvage regimen. And then CAR T is like the third thing I think about in the very fit person. But we may leave ASCO or sorry Ash, we may leave Ash people enthusiastic about Pola up front and then CAR-T second. I'd be very curious in this randomized trial of CAR-T versus auto, how they included the patients and what do they do with primary refractory disease and, you know, those sorts of things. And whether or not people who got auto were able to get CAR-T later and have their OS restored. Um, Absolutely. And I think I really hope we also see some pharmacoeconomic analysis, mm-hmm. you know, because we are really, we have the luxury of having access to these boutique therapies in the mm-hmm. States. But... Um, you know, you'll be surprised that in some developed countries, you know, um, Canada or Europe, yeah. they, they're hopelessly behind, yeah. you know, in terms of access to CAR-T. Um, and, you know, even here, we did an analysis of um, what was the demographic of patient population getting on standard of care CAR-T mm-hmm. therapy. And our patient population was unfortunately extremely privileged I you know sure. um, we we are living in san francisco right. there were really few asian patients mm. um we did really poorly with um uh, african-american patients but you can say okay the denominator is not there you know mm. there are not so many african-american people living in san francisco but there are so many asian people living in san francisco sure. and they're coming to sure. you know ucsf but why are we not putting them on standard of care car t um, so, and then you get to the insurance barrier and the basically prolonged approval that will take away the opportunity for a lot of these patients yeah. to get to CAR-T in a timely fashion. 
You know, I think that uh, the the original sin of CAR-T was that we marketed it as a drug product rather than a cellular product. You know, for years we've been doing stem cell transplant. You can do, you know, CD56 enriched cell, CD34 enriched cell. You can do whatever you want with a stem cell product mm-hmm. and try all sorts of different things. And it, and and CAR-T, you know, is really kind of flexible. Every, you know, people always tweaking their constructs, thinking about co-stimulatory domains or how exactly to put that lentiviral vector in the cell. And so I think it kind of would have made sense to just like UCSF is a great place, great basic science. We just have our own in-house product. We know our benchmarks our rates and uh, then we'd sell it for 30 grand not 430 grand I think that's true and you know we are making our UCSF product right now oh good um, but we are trying What's to target CD19 uh, exactly okay. it's a CD19 car uh, and we're really trying to put patients who otherwise would not get on CAR-T like patients with Burkitt lymphoma who oh, do right. not have an indication or um, you know patients um, with really uh, underserved um, you know insurances that we know it's going to take a very long time for them to get the approval uh, or the other, um, I think, orphan disease, Richter syndrome, mm, that are not, yeah. you know, enrolled, that have not historically been enrolled in any of the CAR T trials. So I think um, the few patients that we put on the trial were really pathologies that wouldn't otherwise be able to get on um, standard of care CAR Ts. Oh, interesting. That's a that's a good place to think about it mm-hmm. too. Let's talk about Hodgkin's for a second. I think Hodgkin's is, uh, and to me, it's always the most interesting because the history is interesting, because the trials are interesting, because, you know, people always say how hard it is to do randomized control trials. But here you have a disease where, uh, you know, the annual incidence is not, it's not lung cancer. It's not even kidney cancer. It's not even myeloma. And you have so many seminal randomized control trials over the last two, two and a half decades that really shape the therapy. So maybe, why don't we walk, or have you, I'll ask you to walk listeners through, okay, the, the three settings I always think about, early stage favorable, early stage unfavorable, and then advanced stage Hodgkin's. Um, what's your go-to treatments for these, these three buckets? Um, I'm radiation averse when it comes to Hodgkin okay. lymphoma because I feel like, um, and you I know, like I've had uh, this discussion with my really good radiation oncology colleagues who think similarly, to be honest with oh, you. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, at least uh, Some know, radiation the oncology. new generation radiation oncologists that I've had the opportunity to talk to and learn from they think similar to They us. always try to slip in 20 gray. They try, when you turn your back, they got 20 gray going. <laughs> yeah, they, they're really, you know, they yeah. just educate me that, you know, we are not doing the mantle radiation anymore. Yeah, Our yeah. field has it's changed. More exactly. It's more focused. It's more it's focused. It's always more focused. Yeah, that's, that's right. But I'm, yeah. I'm radiation averse when yeah. it comes to Hodgkin. And understandably, sure. because they're young patients. Yeah. In females, you want to ideally avoid the risk of breast cancer yeah, right. or radiation-induced cardiovascular toxicity. So <clears throat> I would try to... Basically, stick to um, ABBD okay. um, and you know PET guided. If okay. hopefully they achieve a complete remission, with um, basically two. exactly mm-hmm. two. Um, I used to in my fellowship, um, you know, I had the honor and privilege of being trained by really big leaders in lymphoma. Um, although um, you know. Um, to ABVD and then PET negative to AVD cycles is not established. Mm-hmm. But I did treat patients like that in mm-hmm. my fellowship. Your modified rathal for early stage exactly, disease. Exactly, for mm. early stage. Okay. Okay. Um, with the confidence of my mentors. Mm. And that being said, I came here and... Um, no one does that. Yeah, no yeah. one does that. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're like, okay, the trial has not been done. If there is one day a trial for uh, limited stage, mm-hmm. You can do it, but uh, in any event, um, so. But I think it's uh, it's it's not in, it's defensible. 
I mean, you're probably, you probably have, uh, we're talking about cure rates that are really high. So that's one thing listeners need to know. You're talking about 90 plus percent cure rates. Exactly. And, um, and omitting bleomycin, the delta on that in Rathal is like negligible. You know, it's, uh, it is, neg- I think it's a negligible delta. So what do you think it's going to be in an early stage favorable patient? That's very right. true. That's yeah. really true. Um, and in unfavorable, so I still, uh, unfavorable, yeah. unfavorable yeah. you know, it really depends on, um, you know, we've had really good results with ABVD in unfavorable historically. Yeah. Um, I use AAVD um, oh. in really um, in patients with many high risk features. Yeah. So my first go to regimen for unfavorable patients is still ABVD. I know a lot of people might not agree with that, agree but with that. if they have high IPS. Uh-huh. Um, and particularly if they are presenting with, um, you know, perineoplastic syndromes like um, uh, doctopenia, okay. uh, vanishing bile lock syndrome. Sure. Then in that case, because um, I, I start and with AVD, oh. exactly AVD. Okay. Uh, but oh, I think yeah. okay. you know. Um, we still can get really good results from ABVD, and I and you know I understand that um, the goal should be just long-term remission with the upfront treatment. But um, patients still have, even in the relapse setting, they still have really good results, and the options are really growing. But that being said, um, nothing against AABD. Um, it's just the peripheral neuropathy that is a serious issue. Um, even in young patients, walking them three, through 12 doses of AAVD uh, without those reductions. Um, it's tough. It's tough. It's really a challenge. And, you know, you don't want a young person walking your clinic on a wheelchair, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, or, you know, they, they want to be able to hike. They want to be of able course. to, they have their whole life hopefully ahead of them. Right. So it's... you really want them to be healthy survivors. Um, but there are some patients who are, um, who present and they're crashing and burning with Hodgkin. And I think in that situation, AABD what is about truly their counts? indicated. How do their counts go? That's a great question. You know, with ABVD, I rarely give um, GCSF, you know, and I got that confidence from my fellowship again, you know. Yeah, I let them ride at zero. Exactly, I I kept, you know, screaming the ANC is 400, and, you know, my attending would say, hey, just Just send them to infusion center. Yeah, and and surprisingly, I have not faced, I'm not the most seasoned person Mm -hmm. in the field, but I haven't faced any neutropenic fever with ABVD. But with AAVD, it's a real problem, you Mm -hmm. know, neuropathy and neutropenia. So, and then in addition to getting BV, they have to get GCSF support. So, um, it's definitely not the most convenient regimen. Um, even for young and fit patients, but the results are outstanding. Um, you know, but I'm still um, a believer in ABVD. I um, I really like that. I think it's a very interesting, uh, and I'm glad I asked you because I'd like to see this thought process. Um, Especially after rattle, you know, yes, if, when okay, you yes. have the opportunity of basically de-escalating after two cycles sure. if they, you know, achieved complete remission. I think that's that's pretty amazing that the most toxic drug you're removing and they're just getting as good outcomes as they would have gotten with six cycles of ABVD. Correct. Yeah. So I think I think because Rathal, if anything, the event rate is higher than early favorable. You are justified, I think, in ABVD dropping the B after two of PET. I guess I'm very close to you, but why do I do a little bit differently? For me, the radiation question is, I agree with you, I avoid it almost at all costs. But I, I draw, I have sort of this mental way I think about it, which is, um, 
Anybody you have to radiate in the gut, no thank you. I don't care what it, I mean, I avoid that at all costs. Radiating the gut is a disaster. Sorry, radiation oncologist. You can tell me whatever you want, but it is a disaster. Second thing, in a young person, super clav nodes, mediastinal nodes, I don't like to put radiation in the chest. But what if I get somebody, and I've gotten, you know, the Hodgkins, and it's just in the cervical chain, you know, early favorable, just in the cervical chain. I know this radiation oncologist, they can just, you know, they tell me at least their beam can just just pluck them right off and they don't get any, you know, systemic uh, scatter uh, or very little systemic scatter. And that's somebody who I think about two of ABVD and the 20 gray, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I look at the, anato- the anatomy of it. Um, for, for early unfavorable, I'm with you. I think ABVD is still very good. I haven't thought so much about what to do with, um, you know, the other situation you would encounter is, um, um, uh, uh, it's going to come to me later. Uh, but vanishing bile duct syndrome, I haven't thought too much about what I would do in that case. Um, Okay, let's talk about um, let's talk about advanced disease. Mm-hmm. You're a Rathel subscriber. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Again, um, advanced disease. I don't have anything against AAVD, uh, but it, it, when you look at the forest plot, I yeah. think it should be truly indicated in high risk patients. You know, um, and in that case, yeah, a, there are some patients that everybody can have really high IPS. They were not diagnosed for one plus year, and they were just going, you know, I have patients who present with skin lesions, and they're just diagnosed as psoriasis or different things. And then one year later, they're just coming, basically, they have Hodgkin everywhere. So I think for those patients, I have a low threshold using AAVD, but for, you know, um, a healthy stage four Hodgkin patient who walk in clinic um, and is not too sick, uh, you know, one dose of ABVD does magic. You know, seventy percent of their lymphoma melts right. uh, melts away, and um, they still do well with ABVD. What do you do? Advanced disease, but they also present with HLH. Uh, that is definitely a challenge because I'm. You know, we also have hyperbilirubinemia, which is mm-hmm. going to make Very it tough. really mm-hmm. difficult. So. Um, I start with single agent BV. Okay. Um, you know, for, uh, we know that, of course, they have HLH because of the underlying Hodgkin lymphoma. But um, if we can give them a few doses of, we start them on HLH94 protocol, um, DEX and etoposide to just uh, cool down their liver a little. And if we get to a level of bilirubin, there was a case series um, that they gave bilirubin, uh, they, they gave, I'm sorry, BV in patients with bili in the 20s range. And those patients did well. So I do, I ba- basically borrow from the elderly Hodgkin trial, the mm-hmm. phase two by Andrew Evans, that mm-hmm. they gave sequential BV AVD. Sure. With the difference that I start with BV, and BV is a magic drug, you know, mm-hmm. um, to hopefully bring down their bili a little. Mm-hmm. And then after that, give them AAVD, not AVD alone, give them AAVD. And, um, you know, in a lot of these situations, when, when I start, I still dose reduce BV to 1.2. Okay, okay. Because a lot of those patients, yes. they have really high bilirubins to begin with. Yeah. So a little conservative. And I don't do it, but what I've seen some, um, people do. They give a cyclophosphamide cooling regimen. Sure. They give really high doses of cyclophosphamide. Yes. Um, I, I spent some time at Hopkins, and they love. Oh, okay. Such so things. you've seen that yes. approach. Um, but uh, yeah. I think pre BV. I think you know people may have find it difficult to believe, but when you get Billy twenty twenty five, people will still play through it. You know, they'll push it hard. And um, the one thing you said that's really important is um, pushing ABVD and neutropenia. I think we've all felt the longer you practice and get lymphoma referrals, that some people are dead because the outpatient doctor didn't push it, that they got neutropenia, they dose reduced, they withheld doses, and people are dead as a result of that. And that's the part, I think, 
that's I think one of the things that makes lymphoma so interesting, but also one of the things that makes it so tragic, and one of the things like. If you don't treat a lot of Hodgkin's, you want to talk to somebody who treats a lot of That's of very true. Yeah. And you know, the, the one thing that I think about, uh, ABBD has been around since when? 1976 or some sometime around then. Yes. And when did we start using GCSF? And we yes. were still treating Hodgkin patients with ABBD before GCSF became really conventional in yes. our practice. So, and those patients still did they well. They did fine, yeah. in fact, and they pushed them hard. And also, yeah. I mean, I, uh, yeah, we can talk about that all day. But I want to talk about MIC rearrangements mm-hmm. um, and, and dose-adjusted our epoch. You mm-hmm. know, obviously, we have the CLGB study, dose-adjusted our epoch versus our CHOP and all comers. And stone-cold negative study joins the ranks of promacytobom and colleagues, uh, uh, things that could not dethrone our CHOP. Um, but there's still a lot of practice variation, I notice, you know. Um, so I'm curious what you do. Your, what if it's a high-grade B-cell lymphoma MIC rearranged? What if it's a DOBCL MIC rearranged? And what about the times you get it's MIC rearranged, but it's early stage, you know? It's mm-hmm. localized to, let's say, you know, the arm or the leg or, you know, it's localized disease. So um, when, do you give, when do you give DAR EPOC? That's a great question. It's a data-free zone. My favorite place to yeah, live. Yeah, <laughs> but an opinion-rich zone. Opinion you know? rich. Yeah, yeah, so. Expert-rich yeah, data. Exactly. Free. And I know a lot of people have really strong feelings about this topic. I will start with your last question with limited stage. Okay, yes. So um, I stick to the SWOC trial, which did uh, PET-adapted uh, uh, R-CHOP therapy. So I, you know, because that study, I don't have it off the top of my head, but they also included there was a percentage of double hit patients, mm-hmm. MIC, BCL2, BCL6, mm-hmm. gene range patients. Mm-hmm. And um, so I do a truly limited stage. I do RCHOP3. If they're in complete remission, I do one more cycle of RCHOP. I see. This is JCO paper. This is JCO okay, paper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, exactly. Yeah. 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 Go that on. being said, okay. um, you I'm know, with you on this. they have to be really, you know, um, not too many um, risky features. Yes. Um, for high grade B cell lymphoma with MIG G rearrangement, I um, use those adjusted EPOC R mm. um, because, you know, we know that those patients do not do well with R CHOP. Mm-hmm. That being said, a lot of retrospective studies, they've looked at R CHOP and more intense chemotherapy, right. uh, R CODOX M IVAC, mm, they looked at hyper CVAC, mm-hmm. they looked at those adjusted R EPOC, although mm-hmm. the intense chemotherapy resulted in improved PFS, that did not translate into overall survival mm-hmm. benefit. That being said, you know, I'm more conservative. I, you know, I was, um, I don't, I don't want to say I was raised. I was trained by, yeah, you know, you. exactly. They love to do it. They, you know, I, that's how I did it. And we got really good results. Yes. So I still do those adjusted EPOC R. Yes. And um, in the high-grade B-cell lymphoma with meek BCL2 and or BCL6 gene rearrangement yes. or our double hit, let's yes. say, uh, I use those adjusted EPOC R. I know that... Um, the CLGB50303 was yes. not powered to answer the of question course. for the double hit lymphoma. Yes. Um, and I really wish one day we can run this study. We just randomized double hit. Just double yeah, hit. I know. You know I think do you not can. you know make it crowded with double expressors. Sure. Just answer the double hit question. Um, but I am you know I tend to um, practice on the conservative side, but. Mm-hmm. If I get referrals from outside and the outside provider has recommended six cycles of our job, I just have a very honest and frank conversation with the patient that, um, you know, there is no 
grade one evidence right. to support one way or the other. Right. This is what I've been doing historically. This is how I, I've been trained. Right. And I'm really waiting for the day that the field answers this question. And hopefully that day is not going to be too far. Right. Okay. You're, you're an optimist on that. <laughs> um, I, I, I think what you do is very reasonable. And I think a lot of people do something. Everyone's on the spectrum of where you fall on this issue. I think, um, I think it is possible to do a study on double hit. After all, they've done so many retrospective studies on double hit. Surely they know how to find him. <laughs> That's very true. And you know, the, the Alliance um, group was doing the uh, uh, dose adjusted epoch R plus venetoclax versus dose adjusted epoch for um, double hits. Uh -huh. they clo I, I just they could wish have uh, had they, a child They had on. the patient yeah, population. Yeah, yeah. So I wish they had used that patient population to answer this question, you know, um, rather than just adding yes. another agent. Because, you know, th there is difference between those adjusted. But young patients, we know that uh, up until cycle four or five, we can still dose escalate them by 20%. Right. And um, I think um, it, the, the, the fact that this is a cooperative group study, I don't know, my view on cooperative group studies is I think people feel as if they are 100% independent of the sponsor. They are not. You cannot do cooperative group studies. It's harder to do of older off-brand drugs. It's easier when you get the company to donate the venetoclax and support you because they may support you on the next study or the next study. This is a tough place to be. If we really want cooperative group studies to answer scientific questions where there's no money involved, like RCHOP Epoch is both, you know, there's no corporate sponsor that's making a lot of money off that. Mm -hmm. um, it, you just need some better funding mechanism. I have to think more about that. But I think it's a good point. I mean, that we were able to accrue these patients. But let me ask you this. The, the one thing I think that complicates it is you can do our epoch outpatient here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So, uh, you know, the VA, we, we do it inpatient. Right, yeah. And uh, so I think that's also a factor, right? So Definitely. If you got somebody living far away and you start telling them things like, look, we got to bring you here every 21 days. You're going to be here for four plus five days. -ish. Inconvenience. Inconvenience. Yeah. And you got to drive here and stay here. All for a treatment where I can't with certainty tell you this is superior to the alternative. And I can also tell you that in a few moments in time in history, we had really smart people like Dan Longo and Rick Fisher, and they thought for sure Promacidabomb was better. They were wrong. And then they thought for sure, you know, Epoch was better. Uh, the NCI group, I know they did, and they thought it was wrong. Um, and, the, the, you know, they're disappointed by the, by the, um, the CLGB study. Um, so I think, you know, in lymphoma, we have been burned before, you know, and not that long ago where we believe more, uh, do more drugs, different drugs, higher doses, dose escalation is better. Um, so we'll see. I think it's, uh, it's an important question. I know there are people on the other end of the spectrum, like Aaron Goodman, who sometimes maybe he's listening to this episode. Um, you know, he, I think he avoids it at all costs. I think he only does it, I don't know, I'll have to bring him on and see when he does it, yeah. But I just want to bring up yeah. two really yeah, uh, quick things. So I had a homeless patient in San Francisco with uh, double hit lymphoma who got our chop and did right. well because I had to find a you know shelter for this gentleman yes. to stay. So, you know, convenience is a huge factor yeah. and not everybody has the luxury of, you know, living 10 minutes from a, from a center, a treating center to come in every day and change their pump and all those things. So I agree that convenience is a huge factor. And, you know, I personally hope that we stop doing retrospective multi-center studies comparing those adjusted epoch R versus R chopping double hit, because this is not a question that can be answered even in the most sophisticated Correct. retrospective fashion. It's just going to give you, get you a good abstract and a good poster and, but this and a question, good blood paper. exactly. <laughs> 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 yeah, but at the end of the day, we'll sit here and we'll say, oh, we need RCTs to answer this question. And I just want to unpack like why uh, that's such a true point and why is that true? I mean, I think that there are many types of 
things that you can handle in a retrospective study. Um, you can you can work on getting time zero right and immortal time bias. You can work on that with landmark analyses. You can work on confounding, but there's one type of confounding that's really a pain to fix, and that's confounding by indication or confounding by the doctor's choice. And we all know when you're at a place like this, there are people, as you say, you're going to give CHOP to, and there are people going to give EPOC to. And all of all the factors, you're going to look at them, and if they look like they can take EPOC and come for EPOC and make it to EPOC appointments and they have good social support and they have three family members in the room with clipboards writing down everything you say and they're massaging their feet while their visit is going on and you know like whoa whoa look at this person look how well connected they are they can get the epoch for sure and then you get the next person and they come in and they're you know there's a there's a sheriff standing outside the door with cuffs and they're wearing a yellow jumpsuit you know I, I've had, the, had a patient like that that's a patient I'm like okay well maybe we'll do chop and that bias that's not in the EMR coded under doctor's eyeball passed my epoch test didn't pass my epoch test and you can't adjust for that propensity score matching doesn't do it inverse probability weighting doesn't do it there's no way to do it and it's interesting to me because there are lots of people who specialize in like correcting for these types of deficiencies in large data sets and then there's lots of lymphoma doctors and both are great but there's like almost no overlap and so in medicine (laughs) we get these like oncologists who are really good at your cancer but they don't know pardon my French they don't know shit about how to do these data analyses and they're doing these data analyses and it is a dangerous business like I say, uh, giving giving um, giving an oncologist uh, stata is like giving them it's like giving a child uh, a knife. They, they easily cut their hand. <laughs> they yeah. easily cut themselves. Um, okay, that's great. Okay, now let me ask you about career because mm-hmm. we've been. Uh, I could talk about this all day. It's my favorite topic. And the other, you know, we want to open yes. another can of worms, but Go the on. CNS prophylaxis question. All that right, is, let's do it. <laughs> so I have strong feelings. I but, have I have really strong okay. feelings, but you let's know, fight it um, out. which way do you lean? Ah. Uh, you know, uh, again, um, I use CNS IPI score. I believe in the risk of CNS relapse. It's very true, but how are we going to prevent it to be determined again? Um, if someone has a lot of extranodal sites, um, you know, I don't go solely based on you know IPI. If, uh, you know, if someone has sure, advanced correct. stage, elevated LDH, it you know. matters where the sites are. Exactly, okay. it matters where the so sites, which sites are. So, sites bother you? Kidney and adrenal definitely. Adrenal bother bothers me. me. Okay. Bothers me. And, you know, I've been. I've been. Testicles do bother me. Yeah, exactly. Really bothers me. Yeah. But you know, if someone has, um, you know, um, I don't know, subcutaneous involvement. Oh, okay. You know, Unusual sites. Unusual sites. Nasopharynx. Nasopharynx, you know, that has been discussed. Yes. And at the end of the day, I don't believe it's a risky site, but breast is a real, real risky site. You know, some people believe uterine involvement is really risky. Um, adrenal and kidney we talked about. I tend to give high-dose methotrexate mm-hmm. um, between high-dose and intrathecal methotrexate. And high, how high-dose you're talking? Uh, it's got to be more than three and a half grams per meter squared. Uh, I would actually give it a three and a half to four at the tail end of the treatment. Okay. Um, oh, you do it all at the end? I do it at the end because if they are getting already those adjusted EPOC R... counts go to shit. It can, and it's impossible, impossible. to integrate impossible. methotrexate. You know, you can do RM chop, give R chop, and then methotrexate yeah. on day 14, but that's also going to be really difficult that's, yeah you know that crushes people yeah counts. yeah and and to be honest with you again you are putting a patient through something without having clear data yeah so i tend to do um but how many cycles do you give at the end uh two to three okay two to three and you do three and a half to four three and a half to four less than three exactly. and a half i think you might as well give it not do it at all not do it because okay. you're basically <laughs> yeah, not doing time. much exactly yeah, okay. yeah and you know i know people in my practice who are doing who are religiously abiding by cns ipi score and yeah. they're giving four to six it methotrexate with each cycle what of, do you think yeah. about it methotrexate uh, i am not you know i i honestly don't think it methotrexate does much it for treats, prevention it treats the lumbar 
her back. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I don't think that's it goes. True. I don't think it goes. Distributes in the CSF. Yeah, that, I, that's why you know. I hope that cooperative groups get to a place that these two questions are unanswered questions. You know, we can move on and replace a lot of these agents with new agents like you know Pola, but but we really need to answer these questions because there is nothing worse than over treating you know especially over- the patients begging not to get the it and, and that they is, hate it and nobody likes nobody, it of course not. they're going to be traumatized and you know and if they knew it was just treating the doctor's anxiety yeah am i i ask that question all the time and um you know after six cycles of chemotherapy after four and a half months you want to tell them okay you're in complete remission go yeah. live your life but then bringing them in we give methotrexate high dose methotrexate as inpatient so you're just prolonging their treatment without necessarily knowing whether you're doing them real benefit or not um so again i really hope so I guess I, I have a lot of similar feelings to you in the sense that I don't like the IT. I think it's a pain in the butt. It doesn't do anything. And I think Graham Collins and Toby uh, Ayers from Oxford have written a really nice article about that. Mm-hmm. About the high dose, I think there are a few sites that get me really worried and testicle is one. And in those people, I guess because I'm not so confident Epoch is better than CHOP, I'll give them CHOP and I'll do two CHOP, or, uh, uh, high dose methotrexate, mm-hmm. two CHOP, high dose methotrexate. You know, so I go in that mm-hmm. order um, and try to do for three. And then the other thing I have to be honest with you is is like age and body mass mm-hmm. play a role in my thinking. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm on the fence about CNS prophylaxis and I see somebody whose volume of distribution is large and I start to think about all the secondary methotrexate that's getting sucked up in that volume and that's going to be leaching into the bloodstream for the next 22 days, keeping them prolonged hospitalization mm-hmm. and their mouth starts sloughing and all this stuff, that's a person who I'm going to say, mm, I don't want to do it. And you know, I know life is, there's no such thing as a zero risk life. Like, I believe in COVID risk, but I don't wear my mask outside. (laughs) (laughs) I believe in CNS risk, but I don't give IT methotrexate. But um, no, you don't have to comment on that. (laughs) No, it's, you know, I'm telling you, I have thought about this. I keep thinking about this question every time I see a patient. And I'm like, if I don't give them, you know, I get anxious, to be honest with you. And I'm just treating my own anxiety without any data. This is that you're thinking about. You're thinking, Your Honor, um... Uh, and then Dr. Fakhri noted that um, it was a high-risk CNS relapse. Doctor, why didn't you prescribe methotrexate exactly. to this patient? Yeah, you're imagining exactly. Imagining the court law. Yeah. And then what are you going to tell them in court? You're like, well, you know, there's been no level one randomized control trial. Ever. Do we need a randomized trial for everything? And then they say <laughs> their, you know, their recommendation is on NCCN guidelines. Oh, yes, you know? NCCN guidelines. Yes, that's what they like to say. Mm-hmm. I was like, NCCN guidelines, that's like... Um, it's like going to a Baskin Robbins. There's lots of things on the menu. You're not going to eat it all. You got to use your noggin and decide which ice cream flavor you're going to eat. You can eat all 57 flavors? No. You got to pick a few flavors. NCCN guidance, I mean, uh, I'm going to go my little stuff. I mean, the reason it exists is it is a, it is a Medicare compendia. By law, 2A and higher have to be reimbursed by Medicare That's according true. to the 1999 Omnibus Reconciliation Act of Medicare. And so as long as they do that, its primary purpose is to permit decisions not to prescribe decisions and there's no substitute for being a good doctor and i used to say when i'd see the fellows in my clinic and i you know i come over their shoulder and they got that nccn flowchart out and i knock the keyboard off the table <laughs> in my fellowship they were like they would not like you if you you know refer to nccn guidelines <laughs> that's very like, true no i mean I'd knock the keyboard off the table just knock it off and say don't you ever want to see you open practice, that document yeah. mm-hmm. again good practice so i i i just want to say i really hope as lymphoma physicians we are open and honest about these mm-hmm. limitations without blindly taking sides and just have a real intellectual 
um, unbiased conversation to get to a point that hopefully um, we have the answer. One day we have the answer to these questions without, you know, just putting people in camps. These are the doctors who give, right. you know, methotrexate, CNS prophylaxis. These are the doctors who don't. And just, you know, I, I really hope that um, just be open and honest with each other and also with patients. The last thought I had for you on this topic uh, about, because I think I really like your honesty thing, you know, anything that's tethered to Vidotin, I think people act as if like, look how targeted it is. It's so targeted. It just smells that target, binds, drops that Vidotin, boom, and then runs away. Well, you know what happens? The Vidotin is cleaved, and Vidotin is a potent cellular poison, so that cell goes pop. And the moment that cell goes pop, the Vidotin is in your bloodstream, and the Vidotin goes where Vidotin goes, which is a lot of places you don't want it to go. So these targeted drugs, yeah, they're targeted first pass kill drugs. They're not targeted second pass, and that's why neuropathy is a pain in the butt. That's why, you know, with um, Belantamab, Mafidotin, the Mafidotin moiety, it loves the eye. It loves the, just chews up the eyes, just eats them up. And somebody said, like, the only thing good about it is the drug stops working before you go blind. I was like, I don't think that's a good thing. But, you know, that's what the, that's the new branding model. I mean, so we have to be careful about these antibody drug conjugates. because I think the, the, the payload goes wherever it wants. True. Very true. And, uh, it, you know, the way we describe these things, it's like sci-fi. Every time I'm describing any of these agents to my patients, I'm just fascinated. You know, there is this CD19 targeted antibody attached yes. to this chemotoxic agent. And they really, you know, think, okay, the only place in their body, as you said, that is going to see these these chemotoxic agent is the cancer cell, but that's not the reality. Not the so reality. yes, it is targeted compared to mustard, uh, but yes, but right. you know um, everything comes with a price. Yeah, I think to some degree, patients and even doctors suffer from a cognitive bias of the seduction of mechanistic science. And mechanistic science is great. It's how you come up with hypotheses, but it's the, but what, what matters is the clinical trial results. And so, you know, you have can all, all the mechanisms in the world, you know, wouldn't be able to tell you that when you provide ipi and venmorafenib, you know, you can get hepatotoxicity. There's no mechanism that, they didn't see that coming. Um, so mechanistic science, I think, is incomplete, but these companies for in our field, the videos they make, my God, they're such good videos. By the way, if you work for one of these companies, you make one of these great videos, come help me on my YouTube channel. I want to make, <laughs> I'm going to make my own video. Okay, but yeah, the videos make us think about how sexy it is. And I don't know, I was just thinking the other day, like, um, you know, like when I think about etoposide, what, what, like if, I, if I'm on a psychiatrist's couch and somebody says etoposide, what do you think? I'm like, oh, old and dirty and cytotoxic. And, and when I think here, or I brutinib, I think, oh, targeted, cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice, shiny. Um, but then the moment I brutinib comes off patent, and I think in 2027 or whatever, then I'd be like, oh, I brutinib, dirty and old and, uh, you know, acalabrutinib or, you know, xanabrutinib. Um, anyway, so I wanted to ask you about your career. Um, okay. Um, and then we can talk about these rare things. Um, so, you know, you're an academic lymphoma doctor and um, you define yourself, I guess, I guess, yeah, what, I guess, I guess when you started on faculty here, what did you, what did you hope in terms of like the directions you would push the field? Um, and um, now that you've been on the faculty for, for three plus years, um, how do you feel about it? That's a great question. So yeah, I graduated fellowship and I really had the opportunity to be trained by some of the best lymphoma doctors, you know, shout out to Dr. Nancy Bartlett that I learned a lot from, you know, just by watching her, how she does things and how she talks to patients. Um, you know, she had um, a huge impact on me. Um, and, you know, I also trained by Dr. Call and um, I just fell in love with lymphoma. Having said, I also... I did a lot of myeloma training in my mm -hmm. fellowship. And when I came here, 
I basically joined the lymphoid malignancies group, which is a very um, politically correct way to say, you know, lymphoma mm-hmm. and myeloma. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, uh, I love the myeloma group at UCSF. Um, they're just some some of the most amazing people that I've ever, you know, um, ran into. Um, and I saw a good number of myeloma patients in the beginning of um, my career when I joined that U- when I joined UCSF. But then, um, you know, my heart, you know, your heart wants what it wants. Mm-hmm. I really uh, wanted to see lymphoma, and I approached the lymphoma group. And at that time, you know, the patient population, there was this um, thinking that the patient population is not enough to have a new doctor. But mm-hmm. three years later, we are um, the lymphoma referrals are the highest compared to leukemia and myeloma at UCSF. So, Agent Orange. No, who knows? <laughs> Something's in me. Something. Something, yeah. Um, so now I am just seeing more and more lymphoma. I'm lymphoma mm-hmm. focused. And, you know, I have a It's It's an amazing time to um, be a lymphoma doctor. You know, there's so many changes happening. You know, if someone asks me what was the most revolutionary drug in the first decade of the 21st century, we, we all would say rituximab, okay. to be honest. Yeah, in lymphoma. Yeah, in lymphoma. In the second decade, I still think ibrutinib, you know, with mm, all for CLL. The, yeah, for, for, for a lot of um, basically B-cell malignancies. Sure. Mantle, okay. for lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma, okay. for marginal zone lymphoma. Okay, but at the I, time grant you. That I grant you. The new generation, I the acalabrutinib and xanobrutinib are not, but they really changed the landscape in terms of um, introducing a new agent, which is really effective, um, but of course has its downside being on this drug until disease progression or until toxicities. And we all know that ibrutinib is not a very well-tolerated medicine, but but it changed the field. And, you know, when I graduated, you know, CAR-T, we were doing CAR-T at WashUan trials, but the field exploded after 2017. Sure. I graduated in 2018, sure. and I really learned how to take care of CAR-T patients sure. and the toxicity, CRS, neurotoxicity as an attending. Sure which is totally fine. I think the amount that I've learned as a junior faculty is not comparable to any other learning era of my life. Mm, of course. Because, you know, it's sink or swim. You are on your own. You have to figure it out. And, you know, here at UCSF, everybody is just so um, approachable without any judgment. So I never felt uncomfortable, you know, calling any of my colleagues in the middle of night and the, telling them because you yeah. know that you're trying to do the right thing for the patient. The, and the reason I think you learn more, I always tell people that, that you know, somebody tells me that, you know, when they graduate from medical school, they call them doctor. I said, get the hell <laughs> get out Seriously, of here. You're not yeah. a doctor. You're in the middle. You know, you're, you're, you're in medical school. They call starting. you doctor. <laughs> yeah, right. Get out of here, Ch- child. Uh, you don't you don't know what it means to be a doctor. And then they, you know, you feel like residency you learned. You feel like um, fellowship you learned. Yeah, but you're not a doctor, I think. And you may not like this either until you're five years out of faculty. I and completely agree. Because you, the thing that nobody tells you is the decision is your decision. And sometimes you can ask your colleagues, but sometimes the colleague's not there. And when when that moral weight weighs on your shoulder, you, you read like you've never read before. I'm reading in the middle of the night. I'm reading, 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 reading. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Um, and, and I think that's when you're a doctor. That's very true. That's, I mean, I um, just remain humble because the majority of your learning is still to come. I'm, I'm still waiting, you know, to learn more. And I, I, I think, yeah. yeah, and I really think, you know, the CAR-T field has, um, is really, it's an exciting time to be in lymphoma because, you know, I, I always tell patients up until 2017, outside the clinical trial, patients who had relapsed after auto or who were primary refractory to salvage therapy, 
they had to go down the palliative route. But now we are able to, if you look at the um, Juliet, the Zuma one, mm -hmm. or the Transcend NHL 001, 40% of patients who didn't otherwise have any other options mm -hmm. enjoy long-term remissions mm -hmm. with CAR-T. Of course, the data is young, but so far we know that. Certainly better than um, myeloma where it wears off. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. The, yeah, let's brag, yeah, yes. <laughs> for sure. And, and you know, now we are seeing some movement in um, upfront uh, treatment for the LBCL to be determined. To I be don't determined. want to get, a, get yeah. overexcited, but I, I am excited to see between CAR-T and auto how that trial, yeah. those trials I'm are going to pan out. I'm very curious. And, you know, it's good to have so many treatment combinations for relapsed refractory setting, but I hope we don't get to where the myeloma field is that there's so many triplets um, that it's at the end of the day, physician's choice. I really hope we get to do some randomized control trials to see, okay, Tafalen, Lankestoximab, BRPOLA, what are the toxicities? What's the PFS? You know, we are talking about relapsed refractory settings. So I think PFS is a reasonable, um, or time to next treatment is a reasonable endpoint. Um, otherwise, you know, it's just, you're just gonna have this armamentarium of treatment options. There's going to be this menu of options, and whoever paid for your dinner last night's the one you go with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It I mean, it's sometimes. possible. You yeah. know, no matter how you you talk to patients about these options, but patients are you know it's overwhelming yeah. to leave the decision up to patient. And yes, you can make decision based off of toxicity and comorbidities, but at, at the end of the day, you really want some head-to-head -head comparison data. When I started my oncology training, I think I was in um, a CLL clinic and we were doing investigational studies of ibrutinib. This was 2012. And uh, there was a patient who had, had relapsed refractory CLL and they started taking ibrutinib and, and all their nodes shrunk, you know, you know, the classic lymphocytosis and the whole the perfect thing. And then this patient was telling me something that he's like, you know, when it started going so well for me, so I started buying the pharmacyclic stock. I kept buying the stock. Smart. And taking the, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. My first thought yeah. was, mm -hmm. I was like, is this insider trading? But then I was like, I don't know. I don't think mm -hmm. it is because he just knows his own body. Mm -hmm. And I was like, he's putting, and I was like, well, you know, he is literally putting all his eggs in one basket, both his his physical well-being and the stock. And then as you know what happened to that stock, I don't know what happened to that stock. I don't know what happened to this patient, but I know that what happened to that stock. And uh, well, uh, good for him. I, I wish him well. And yeah. then the next thing I noticed is um, around this time, this Jim Kokendorfer was at the NIH and he's working with Rosenberg and he was literally by himself all the time. I saw Jim walking around and he was always like going to the liquid nitrogen tank and doing something. And I was like, who's this guy? And they're like, oh, he's just this fellow who came from MD Anderson. I was like, what's he working on? He's like, car and I was like, CAR-T. <laughs> I was like, immunotherapy. <laughs> I walked away laughing. Now I'm like, Jim, sign my, sign my, sign my JCO. Can I get an autograph? Um, yeah, so it is funny. You never know. Um, but you're right. I hadn't thought about, yeah, that is probably the two most transformative things. And, you know, I also see a good number of CLL patients. You know, when I graduated yeah. from fellowship over the Tuzumab in other clacks, trial, the CLL-14 trial, I had not read out yet. Yes. Um, a calibrutinib upfront had not read out yet. So, so much is happening. And, you know, um, I always, I had an attending in fellowship who said, I went into myeloma because melphalan was the only drug. Mm -hmm. And now look at what my life. Every week, something new is coming something out. New. Yeah. And, and now we have melflufin. So. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. So I don't know how he feels about that. Yeah, but melflufin. So, yeah, mm. so let's just remain uh, humble and keep learning. Okay, but um, that's terrific. And I agree with all that. I guess I'm curious. So your career, I guess... What is your what is your career goal? You like, I mean, obviously you love seeing patients, you love thinking through clinical situations. Um, and I think that was evident when I listened to you talk. Um, 
but you like being, you like running trials, participating in trials. You like thinking about clinical studies. You see yourself going in the cooperative group direction. Um, what do you, what do you hope to do? Yeah. So I, I love seeing patients, but I also really like running clinical trials. Um, I hope I get to a point that I can be very specific about the clinical trials that I want to run. Of course, as a junior faculty, you know, um, Bob Walker, I always quote him, you know, before 40 say yes to everything, after 40 say no to everything. Mm. So I'm getting close. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I have a few years to say okay. yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. But that's actually really good advice, you know, because mm. even some trials that we can sit here and criticize them mm. forever, mm. and there is an opportunity for you to be the PI, you can make it a meaningful experience in terms of learning how to run a trial, um, the logistics, talking to patients, mm-hmm. um, unbiasedly, um, you know, telling them the pros and cons of being on a trial. So I think it's a good experience, but I really hope I get to a point that I can say yes to trials that I really think are going to be practice changing. Mm-hmm. I think the cooperative groups um, are really trying to answer unanswered questions in the field. But mm-hmm. of course, uh, you know, we They're are not limited. living in a vacuum. Yes. There are so many other factors that are going to make that determination of how trials are going to be designed. Um, so I, I hope that I can become a clinical trialist um, and um, be more active in the cooperative groups. And, um, you know, also some pharma sponsored trials. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think um, pharma companies, they're um, making more um, basically collaborations with um, academic institutions and they're really trying to, uh, at least some of them are trying to design uh, trials in a way that truly answers um, an unanswered question in a fair fashion. You know, what happened to triplet versus doublet, right. uh, doublets in myeloma? You know, I think a lot of people have gotten to a point that realized that you cannot do that forever, you know? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, one of the things you said that uh, sticks with me is that... Um, and it's something I agree with you a lot, which is, you know, we can't let lymphoma be myeloma. <laughs> but no offense to these myeloma people, but mm-hmm. I guess what I think is, it is dissatisfying to me that um, we don't have sufficient phase three data to have confidence in frontline myeloma, who should get what? I mean, I think you, reasonable people could argue this person should get DARA-RD, some should get VRD, they've never been tested head-to-head. Um, you know, should, you could DARA-VRD. Uh, if you're high-risk, should you get dual PI maintenance? Should you, what should you get frontline? Um, lymphoma, I think right now we're in a moment where I think most people, 99% of lymphoma doctors will agree, a de novo DOBCL non-make rearranged, we're gonna give CHOP. You know, I think we're gonna, okay, we agree. Um, uh, there, I think, I, I, I want to live in a world where the first, second, and third lymphoma treatment are based on randomized data where I know that this is the best Absolutely. choice. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, now we know anthracycline-based therapy. Yes, yes we yes. can kill each other. We can argue over yes. R-CHOP versus dose-adjusted EPOC-R. Sure. But at least we know if someone is anthracycline eligible, that's going to be okay. the frontline yes. regimen. Second line, at least until ASH 2021. Auto. Exactly. Okay. We know auto is the answer. We yes. can argue over salvage regimens. And GDP and how, or yeah, ICE exactly. or DHAP. Well, yeah. I'd love to argue that, yes, but right, but, we know auto. But the principle is yes, there. Yes. And we know that at second relapse, we take them for CAR. Yeah. But okay, what's going to happen after CAR? Right. That's where it's becoming overcrowded. Anyone can do whatever they want. And it, yeah. And it's, a, as we said, it's a data-free zone. And I really hope it's good to have treatment options, but it's good to make sense of them. We have to be able to uh, situate these treatment options in the landscape. And that's, I think, the art of treatment, the yeah. art of being a doctor. Yeah, and I guess I, I, I agree. And I think I think it's a mistake to believe that the fact you can choose any, in myeloma, once you get to second line, 
even for you know first line, second line, and you can choose anything you want. No one has any data. Um, and I think people will say, well, that's precision. You know, that's that's meeting. I was like, no, it's not precision. It's just absence of good studies. So I guess uh, I also, and the other side of the equation that I think about is, you know, this country spent 20% of GDP on healthcare. Uh, when are we going to stop? I don't know, 40%, 50%, 60%. I think Rome collapsed when half of the days were holidays. Maybe the U.S. will collapse when half of GDP is healthcare spending. I don't know. You know, a society cannot live just to fund its own healthcare. So how do we have this juxtaposition? We're spending a couple trillion at federal level on healthcare, and we don't even know what the second line, first line treatment of myeloma or the second line treatment, you know, lymphoma, it should be. And I think it's, that's to me is the interesting thing, uh, at least I think is interesting, is like, how can you restructure some policy systems in place where, you know, I've always said this before, but like some fraction of Medicare spending should be on like running these trials, even if we pay for it all. Um, you know, the cooperative groups, their their funding is is just it's a trickle. It's a California. It's a California. It's drought. impossible. Yeah. It's just not uh, yeah. And, you know, at a UC institution, at a public institution, it's really impossible because we are losing mm. money and we can contribute mm. and we have the patient population. But, you know, the money is not there. Yeah. So, and then the last thing I'll ask you about is teaching. You love to teach. I do, yeah. Okay. I, because I think, you know, there's this old saying, in teaching we learn, mm -hmm. uh, and in learning we teach. Um, you know, every time I am, I don't want to say forced to, but I'm assigned um, to teach a yes. certain topic, um, I just realized at the end of the day, yeah, it's a lot of work, but I've learned so much about that topic. You know, it's it's like writing a review paper on a topic. It's not an enjoyable experience. You mm -hmm. have to do a lot of reading and literature search, but at the end of the day, you feel like, oh, I really learned deeply about a topic. And, you know, uh, we are fortunate that we are working with really incredibly smart uh, trainees who really, you know, want you to be better, want you to read more, want you to be on top of your game. So uh, I love teaching because um, of the positive feedback that I see from uh, fellows and residents that I work with. And it's really important to see where your learner is, you know, be at their level. You know, when you have a resident, you can't talk about, mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 you have to see them where they are. You have to meet them where they are. Um, and yeah, and it just makes me read so deeply about a topic that at the end of the day, I think I taught myself rather than anyone else. Mm. So if you were to give a one hour lecture, how much time do you prepare for that? It depends on the topic. Let's you know. the, the one I heard you give on histiocytosis. Yes, yeah, histiocytic disorders yes. is a brand new, you know, I, um, so let's, yeah, I will briefly talk about that. So, let's talk about it, yeah, because yes. I, I also so, love to debate this. So uh -huh. I will tell you what happened. I had a patient with Rosai Dorfman disease, mm -hmm. um, a very, um, you know, uh, an incredible gentleman who was having dystrion exertion and really bad symptoms. And initially they thought it's heart failure. And then finally they imaged him and they thought he has this infiltrating lymphoma in his lung, but then it was biopsied that it was Rosai Dorfman disease. Mm. And I basically assumed his care um, when the imaging was consistent with mm -hmm. infiltrating lymphoma. I and see. then it came back as Rosai Dorfman disease. Mm -hmm. And historically there is, um, a phenomenal attending at UCSF who sees histiocytic disorders because nobody else wants I to didn't see know them. This. Uh, yeah, Dr. Damon, okay. Lloyd Damon. Oh, he loves Yes, you know, he knows everything. And of course, histiocytic disorders is nothing for him. But for me, uh, yeah, I had studied for boards. I knew a thing sure. or two, but you cannot, you know, treat someone based on your board knowledge. So it just made me go and read on the topic and, um, you know, learn about... Uh, 
longer Han sell his suicidosis, Erdheim Chester, and uh, with a focus on Rosai Dorfman. So that, um, the reading process, because, you know, there are no randomized control trials for mm-hmm. histiocytic disorders because they're really rare mm-hmm. diseases. Mm-hmm. You really have to depend on anecdotal experience mm-hmm. and case reports and case series. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to just go through them a little judgmental to make mm-hmm. sure that you're filtering. Yes. Um, appropriately. Critically. Exactly. And you rely on principles of oncology, like how do they feel? How are they looking? What's the tumor growth rate? You know, those sorts Very of things. Very true. You know, there is this principle that the treatment should not be more toxic than the disease. You yeah. know, the fact that someone has a histocytic disorder does not readily mean that they need to be treated. So yeah, for that, yeah, I, I would say for that talk, it, it took me about one week to prepare uh, because, you know, um, I had to rely, I had to send emails to Histocyte Society to answer some yeah. of my questions because, you know, the experts are, um, you know, of course, I can. I could go to Lloyd and ask questions, but when you want to give a talk, you want to make sure that you're including all the most recent yeah. up-to-date literature. So it's good to ask for the help of people who are basically the leaders of the field. That's well put. And, you know, I, uh, I feel similarly to you because I think that one of the mistakes faculty, junior faculty, senior faculty, people make is they take for granted the opportunity teaching is. You're going to get 20 people in a room against their will to come listen to you. You got to do a lot of work so that they get something out of it. And I, I don't know, many years ago, somebody, somebody tricked me. Actually, they didn't ask me. They tricked me into teaching like lymphoma. And I was like, okay, so I can teach lymphoma. I've been practicing lymphoma for so many years. I got so many lymphoma patients. Um, and then I started to think about teaching it. And I was like, well, you know, it's not so easy to teach because this WHO, every, every damn couple years, they got some new lymphoma. <laughs> yeah. I never heard of this lymphoma. And to be honest, I don't even know how many they got now. They got 212. They got to keep carving them up. And then I started thinking about it. And I was thinking that actually, you know, there's that quote by Plato that says, you know, science is carving nature at its joints. And to some degree, lymphoma, WHO classification of lymphoma is, quote, carving nature at its joints, except it doesn't have perfect joints. It's a spectrum. It's a spectrum of disease from aggressive, rip-roaring burkits to really slow marginal zone lymphoma. And along this spectrum, there are places where we can cure, eradicate the last microscopic cell, typically because those cells are in cell cycle at such high rates and they're not in G0. And they're places we cannot cure no matter what we do, follicular, maybe with the exception of uh, Zuma 5 or et cetera. Um, but you know, we historically have not been able to get that last cell and maybe we'll find we cannot get the last cell there. Um, and I started to think about it and then I started you know, working on this teaching thing. And now I, I don't know, I feel like I have learned a lot more. I feel like lymphoma means something different to me than it meant before. It is not DLBCL and this, it's a spectrum. And we're just arbitrarily carving it in certain places based on histopathology and genetics. It's imperfect. We're going to carve it better in the future. Maybe someday we will get to this platonic ideal of the joints. But in the meantime, there's some general principles, you know, indolent lymphomas, you can follow GELF criteria. You know, you don't have to treat right away. Why? Because you're probably not going to cure them anyway. So what good are you doing then by treating them? And also we've got some randomized data that it didn't improve outcomes. But these aggressive lymphomas, you know, every once in a while you get the Hodgkin's lymphoma patient, all the disease was fully excised. Ah, that's a challenge, huh? That's true. That's very true. What do you do with that? Hodgkin's lymphoma patient, young, healthy, all the diseases out. Pet them, they're totally negative. But they did have classical Hodgkin's in four nodes. Uh, in the, in the this arm. is a very tough place to be. Yeah. I treat them. Um, but you can also, you know, radiate them mm-hmm. based on yeah. exactly as you said, where the anatomical site yeah. was. But that's a very challenging place to be. To I, be honest. I treat yeah. them too, yeah. and yeah. and I think the reason you treat them is because you don't want to miss the chance of cure. 
But yeah, the same patient follicular lymphoma or nodule lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin's uh, that you're not going to cure him, you watch that patient, right? Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, go, that goes back to, I don't know, this is to, to your point about like teaching helps you learn. Um, when you're forced to give a lecture, you kind of come up with like, why do we have this intuition? Why do we have these philosophies um, in lymphoma or myeloma? Or they all have their own unique world. Um, and I guess the last thing I'd say is to me, like one of the interesting things is, and you've bridged this too, you've done myeloma and lymphoma as a faculty member and before that you've done everything. To me, every once in a while, I think there is an insight that comes in lymphoma if you happen to know a little bit about myeloma. And there's an insight that comes in myeloma if you know a little bit about kidney cancer sometimes I find because there, there are similarities and differences in the culture in a field. And these days we're, we're more and more segregated. And so our cultures are becoming a little bit different. That's very true. And you know, as you said, a lot of these entities, you know, uh, Burkitt lymphoma, high-grade B-cell lymphoma, they're not solid entities. No, they're, not. they're fluid. They're you fluid, know? totally fluid. You, they flow. And you, you really, uh, you know, when, when I graduated from fellowship, I was like, okay, the LBCL, I know how to treat. But then you become a faculty. Three years in, I've seen some cases that I had, and I saw a good number of lymphoma right. patients as a fellow. And I had never, you know, I was like, where, where are simple DLBCL NOS patients? You know, the first Hodgkin patient that I saw as a, as a faculty was, uh, had perineoplastic uh, vanishing bilog syndrome. Mm. And I'm like, I remember I sent an email to my mentor and I said, is this real? Is this a real entity? <laughs> so I hadn't seen as right. a fellow. Right. I didn't know how to treat. So yeah, uh, exactly as you said. Um, these entities are not solid. They're all fluid and related. And I think our fields are also not, we are not, work, we are not practicing on an island. You know, mm -hmm. We need each other to see what's happening in the other field, to learn and inspire and do trials based on their findings. Rita Fakhri, thank you so much for doing this interview. It's been super interesting. Uh, loved talking about lymphoma and loved hearing your thoughts on all these issues. Thank you for doing this. It was fun to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time. <laughs>